Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the storytelling poet Marilyn Nelson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. So, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Rick Jess. I am the director of the Center for Jewish Studies at UNC Asheville, and I'm also a member of the Department of English. And I'm standing here with my dear friends and colleagues and sources of inspiration and co-organizers of the Faith and Literature Festival, Evan Gurney, who's in the office right across the hall from mine, and I'm the luckiest person at UNCA to have Evan as my neighbor across the hall, and Fred Bonson from Wake Forest University School of Divinity, and I'm also the luckiest person in the world to have gotten to teach Fred's book multiple times in a number of my classes and to have Fred come up and very generously meet with my students and work with them and give them great ideas about writing. And we are really happy to welcome you to this very special evening at the end of what's been an extraordinary day. For those of you who had an opportunity to come to some of the other readings, I think you know how much talent is in this room and how much good talk about art, faith, and spirituality is actually happening not only in America, but right here in Asheville, North Carolina on the campus of UNC Asheville. And the great energy, the great discussions, the great readings are going to continue all day tomorrow, and tomorrow night we'll be back again for another evening with Krista Tippett and tomorrow evening's guest. Uh, but now we're going to move on with this evening's program, and so I'd like to call on our provost, our wonderful provost, who's been so supportive of me and all of my work since the day he arrived at UNC Asheville, and I've never said this to you, provost ergo, but I really look at you as a kind of mentor. Even though I'm kind of in the late stages of my career, I'm not too old to have a mentor, so I'm very happy to have yet another mentor in my life. I'm going to call provost ergo, and he'll immediately be followed by Dean Gail O'Day from Wake Forest University's uh, School of Divinity, with whom we feel so fortunate to have been able to partner on this event. So, Provost Ergo, followed by Dean O'Day. I don't think I would presume to mentor Rick Chess, but I will see what I can do. This has been a tremendous day for contemporary writers of the spirit. It started at 1.10 this morning when Leonard Cohen's new album was released. Uh, I think if you were... If you're waiting for it like I was, I was listening at about 2 in the morning, and it's, it's been worth the wait. 82 years old, and I think he's all of our mentors. So I do want to thank Rick Chess, who's been the guiding spirit for this conference and putting it together. I want to thank Gail O'Day, Dean of Wake Forest School of Divinity, for co-convening, and she'll be co-convening in a moment when I get out of the way. I also want to thank WCQS and the North Carolina Arts Council for their help with putting this together and our many partners and supporters who are listed on the program. Uh, the, the, the issue or the, the realm of spirituality and literature has been important to me throughout my career. Uh, and I have a couple of passages that are meaningful to me when I think about this subject. There's one in particular I want to share tonight, though, uh, in order to just conclude my remarks. It's from Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather. And it has to do with the intersection of miracles and faith and perception. Where there is great love, there are always miracles. 
One might almost say that an apparition is human vision corrected by divine love. I do not see you as you really are. I see you through my affection for you. Miracles seem to me to rest not so much upon faces or voices or powers coming suddenly near to us from afar, but upon our perceptions being made finer, so that for a moment our eyes can see and our ears can hear what is there about us always. So it's my pleasure to convene this gathering, and I hope over the course of a few days our perceptions will be made finer as a result. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Gail O'Day, Dean of the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem. Oh, I'm pointing like this because I think that's east. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where this building is, but the idea was where, oh, somebody's telling me. Okay, I'll do it better. That, we're two hours that way. <laughs> but we have lots and lots of friends in Asheville, so we're super happy to be here. Um, and some of you might be wondering, what's a school of divinity? So I'm just gonna take a minute to tell you that as part of my welcome. We are a graduate professional school at Wake Forest whose mission is to prepare students for religious leadership in a wide range of settings. From congregations is what people kind of automatically think of, that's what a religious leader is, you look to a congregation to find them, uh, to nonprofits, to all kinds of places where there are people in need who are asking the serious questions about what life means and why life matters. That's what we do. Our community embraces the voices of many traditions as an essential part of that preparation, and we sure have heard many amazing voices today. And our students have had to come here too for a class, so we've had some students drive also. We have a growing number of courses and initiatives in spirituality and the arts, and so are delighted to be co-sponsoring this writing festival with UNCA. Thanks to all of you for being here this evening and for sharing and expressing this commitment to faith and literature and to thinking that paying attention to words matters. And thanks to, well, you've already seen, the, they all stood up already. Thanks to the three people who've really done, the, who've worked creatively and diligently to make this happen. And based on the wonderful readings that we have had today, we're in for a great night tonight and a great day tomorrow. So thank you to those who worked and thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you, Dino Day, and thank you, Provost Urgo. So I'd like to try a little experiment right now. I'd like you all to think back about the day that we're now bringing to a close as we transition into evening and night. And I'd like you to think about just one thing for which you feel grateful, something that you experienced today. And I'm actually gonna give you a minute or so if you feel comfortable doing so to close your eyes or just direct your attention inward and see if you can recall one thing for which you feel grateful today. And when you have that thing in mind, see if you can really fire up the feeling of gratitude inside. 
And what I'd like to ask us to do now is to expand that gratitude and extend it so it includes many of the organizations, offices, institutions, and individuals who have worked together to create this festival. It's not just about the three of us or the five of us from whom you've already heard, but many, many people had to come together, most of whom you won't ever even get a chance to interact with. And so hold on to that feeling of gratitude and see if you can feel it expand outward as we include the names of the organizations, institutions, offices, and individuals that have supported us. WCQS, the North Carolina Arts Council, the North Carolina Humanities Council, Malaprops Bookstore and Cafe, UNC Asheville's NEH Distinguished Professor of Humanities, Dan Pierce, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNC Asheville, UNC Asheville Centers for Diversity Education and Center for Jewish Studies, the PB Paris Visiting Writer Fund, the Goodman Visiting Writer Fund, Bob and Carol Deutsch, the Amy Mandel and Katina Rodas Fund, the Office of Our University's Chancellor and the Office of UNC Asheville's Provost, our Office of University Advancement, and our Cultural Events and Special Academics Program Team. Also, I can't leave out Lily Percy, the senior producer of On Being, with whom I've had so much pleasure working over the last six months trying to put this project together. Uh, our gratitude to all of you, those of you who have directly contributed to making this possible and those of you who are sitting in this room and creating a sense of presence and receptivity for tonight's event, our gratitude toward all of you is boundless. So thank you for being here and thank you to all of our supporters and friends. So Joe, I think I'm gonna take you off my list of mentors because you stole my thunder by mentioning Leonard Cohen. But, uh, um, but I'm gonna to get to Leonard Cohen in a little bit. Before that, there are gonna be some other wonderful writers who are gonna step up. When we were thinking about this, we knew this particular event, tonight and tomorrow night, was gonna draw a very large crowd. And we wanted to make sure that everyone got a chance to hear all the amazing writers. And so half of the writers are gonna read a little bit tonight, about two minutes each, and half of them are gonna read a little bit tomorrow night. But I wanna set the stage for what's gonna happen. You might have seen in your program, we gave this evening the theme of, and there was evening. And you probably recognize this language from the book of Genesis. It just so happens that we are present here at the very moment spoken of in Genesis, the moment of transition from day to night. On the Jewish calendar, this evening in particular marks the moment of leaving behind the six days of the week and of entering the Sabbath. It doesn't matter what your religious tradition is, nor does it matter if you have a religious tradition. Time passes. We can ignore its passage or we can stop and pay attention to it. Stop and pay attention. What a novel idea. What might we discover if we were to do so? Tonight, to help us pause and mark this moment of transition, we're going to hear six of our writers. 
who will read from brief passages or short poems of their own. Scott Cairns, Amy Gottlieb, Evan Gurney, Shadab Hashmi, Lori Patton, and me. Um, <laughs> and so I'm going to um, invite us all to open our ears and hearts to receive the work. They're going to read in that order. If you're interested in their full bios, you can find them in your programs. And so please, writers, come and join me up here at the podium. Short trip to the edge. And then I was standing at the edge. It would surprise you how near to home. And the abyss, every shade of blue, all of them readily confused. And oddly, none of this as terrifying as I had expected, just endless. What? You find this business easy when every breath is thick with heady vapor from the edge you might not be so quick to deny what prefers its more dramatic churning done out of sight. Enough about you. The enormity spun, and I spun too, and reached across what must have been its dome. When I was good and dizzy, since it was so near, I went home. This excerpt is from my novel, The Beautiful Possible. Rosalie Karam, a rabbi's wife, reflects on the meaning of faith. She stands in the back of the paneled sanctuary on a Shabbat morning, looks at the faces in the room, and considers the narrowing field of her life. This place is her ashram, her place to think about God, or rather, desire, the desire that sets all things in motion. She stares at these people with whom she has walked through the chapters of her life, each of them aging in sync with one another, and yet she barely knows them. Prayer is impossible for Rosalie, impossible for all of them. If her grown sons were home for a holiday, they would roll their eyes at the modest gathering and think, such sad lives. Why do these people listen to a rabbi preach about God when the world is so vast with possibility? Faith becomes a habit that cannot be explained. A few of the congregants practice it like a musical instrument. They open the black prayer book and chuckle from side to side as someone once taught them. Walter wrote about this in one of his books. Rosalie remembers when he told her this story. On a research trip to Varanasi, I approached a man who was bathing in the Ganges, the ashes of the freshly cremated bodies floating around his legs. He was wearing a Western suit, and I was surprised to see him standing in the water with his pants rolled up. He said, my father bathed in this river and called it holy. So at first I came here for my father to understand the heart of the man who raised me. Then I came back again and looked at the people who were walking into the filthy river, and I admired their faces. And then I realized I was one of them. A cesspool became love, became dignity, became everything that mattered. Love in this dirty, holy water, love on my body, love on the faces of the people around me who could be me, who are me, and the dead who once loved this world too, who once stood in this water just like me.
nearly every night for the last four years, I've been marking time um, in this threshold moment by reading to um, one or both of my two sons. This is reading with my son. He stops my reading with a fist, smack down on the serifed letters, indifferent to semiotics, abstract signs, symbols, whatever. Instead, takes hold of the codex, shakes and weighs its heft and grip, finds the hinge and opens to his text, brings it like a plate to his lip, sniffs recto, then verso, as if the leaf still smelled of greased calfskin he craves, and carves hieroglyphs the book will wear like a toothy grin. He stops, drools, set to, sets to it afresh, how he hungers for words turned flesh. Thank you. And there was evening. You were born raging like a lioness. A monsoon evening, the window wide and the world awash. With this, the window and the story of my first hours on earth my mother conjures a desire for perspective and possibility. I will grow up seeing the veins of history mapped onto this window. Equations of math and myth, the teeth of logic, tufts of wisdom, pillars of language roofed by silence, every hue between identification and imagination. This seeing will begin from the most luxurious vantage point possible, my mother's arms. And it is evening here in California, evening of a melon sherbet sky and birds with pencil nibs for beaks. In the ultrasound image, my baby is an amphibious enigma, a riddle wafting in unfathomable love, thumb in mouth, curled like a golden promise, a dreamscape reminding me of a flock of starlings forming a dancing cloud. I shudder at his vulnerability. Recall a verse from the Quran. Do they not see the birds above with wings outspread or folded in? None holds them aloft except Ar-Rahman, the most merciful one. Indeed he is of all things seeing. The word ar-Rahman comes from raham or womb, the superlative form of merciful love, the most exalted of the 99 beautiful names of God. Driving back from the clinic in the fading light, I feel vulnerable and empowered at the same time. Hand on my belly, I imagine the warmth of the womb waters. As my husband opens the door, Yasin, my two-year-old, shrieks in delight, arms thrown wide. The sight quickens my heartbeat, and baby Yusuf, weeks away from being born, feels my burst of joy and starts kicking in response. Love was never spoken with more eloquence, and I, the poet in the house, had nothing to do with it. Thank you. <laughs> The poem I'm about to read is from a book uh, that is a result of the practice of 
what I call contemplative reading or slow reading or reading not for use, not for consumerist reading, but for being grasped by the text. Uh, and this is um, a result of being grasped by the weekly Jewish cycle of readings and allowing one line in each of those cycles to take hold of one in a non-consumerist way. And uh, this is the Shabbat poem in that weekly cycle. The text is from Exodus 35, one to two. Moses then called together the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded to do. On six days may work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. The rabbis rushed to say that we don't really die if we work on Shabbat. They were sure that the second soul who arrives on that day dies instead. What does a second soul look like? Not a gray gentleman who comes to the door with a sad smile and leaves just as politely in a whisper through the fog. No, my second soul is crouching now under my chair, a panting animal for whom breath and rest and sun are the same. Such a creature does not go lightly, but dances to every tune offered up by the wind. Language lesson. <clears throat> the word for grief in Hebrew is yagon. The word for dance is rikud. Strength is koach. Beauty, yofi. Land, eretz. You could say the dance of grief is a source of strength in this beautiful land. You could say strength is the only beauty in the land of grief where no one dances. You could say the beauty of dance is in how it expresses the strength and grief of this land. You are ready now to move on. The word for explosion is pitzutz. The word for revelation is hitgalut. The word for terror is emal. The word for curse, klala. The word for blessing, bracha. The word for love, ahava. The word for exile is gola. You could say, let's dance. You'll be the blessing. I'll be the curse. We'll be the place of revelation where love and terror meet. That explosion you hear from afar, it's my heart that has been in exile too long. I am your Hebrew teacher. My job, to give you lessons in strength and grief. Thank you. 
Thank you all, and thanks for your kind and generous attention. In a recently published profile of another one of our age's great poets and songwriters, Leonard Cohen says, <laughs> I knew there was a reason why I liked you, but um, anyway, Leonard Cohen says in a New Yorker profile that was published a week ago, I know there is a spiritual aspect to everybody's life, whether they want to cop to it or not. It's there, Cohen says, you can feel it in people. There's some recognition that there is a reality that they cannot penetrate, but which influences their mood and activity. So that's operating, that activity at certain points of your day that insists on a certain kind of response. What I mean to say, this is still Cohen, I'm quoting, what I mean to say is that you hear the bat kol, and the bat kol is a Hebrew term, could be translated as the divine voice. You hear this other voice, this other deep reality singing to you all the time, says Cohen, and much of the time you can't decipher it. Though they might not call it the bot call, Marilyn Nelson and Krista Tippett, in my sense of things, both hear that voice, respond to it, and help us decipher it. Whether it's by means of powerful poems in which history and family and the contemplative life meet and speak, or by means of dialogue, wise questioning, and deep listening, Marilyn Nelson and Krista Tippett, each in her own way, hears the voice and helps us hear it too. And it's not just one voice, but many and varied voices singing love and grief yearning and wonder, suffering, and the release of suffering. Marilyn Nelson, a three-time finalist for the National Book Award, is one of America's most celebrated poets. She's the author or translator of at least 17 poetry books for adults and children. In 2014, she published a memoir, which NPR named as one of its best books of 2014, entitled How I Discovered Poetry, a series of 50 poems about growing up in the 1950s in a military family. <coughs> Image, one of my favorite journals, a journal devoted to publishing work that emerges from the intersection of art, faith, and mystery, writes this about Marilyn Nelson's work. American history, as conceived by Marilyn Nelson, is the inside-out, last-shall-be-first version. She inhabits the voices of the overlooked and disenfranchised and shines light into forgotten corners that reveal essential truths about the whole. But if she is a revisionist historian's poet, she is also a child's poet, a mother's poet, a housekeeper's poet, and a scientist poet. It's this breadth of perspective from pole to pole, past to present, from spheres domestic to atmospheric, that make her so remarkable. Krista Tippett is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author. In 2014, she received the National Humanities Medal at the White House for, quote, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence, on the air and in print, 
Ms. Tippett avoids easy answers, embracing complexity and inviting people of every background to join her conversation about faith, ethics, and moral wisdom. In 2007, Krista published her first book, Speaking of Faith. In 2010, she published Einstein's God, drawn from her interviews at the intersection of science, medicine, and spiritual inquiry. And now, Krista's New York Times bestseller, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, opens into the questions and challenges of this century. We are extraordinarily fortunate to have this opportunity to be present with Krista Tippett and Marilyn Nelson as they engage in conversation this evening. Following their conversation, books will be available for purchase and signing, thanks to Malaprops, just inside Carmichael Hall, which is just across the breezeway from Humanities Lecture Hall. And many of the festival's authors will also be there, and I'm sure they'll be happy to sell copies of their books as well. I should also mention, Evan, do you have that t-shirt? Um, we have a t-shirt that says, uh, we have faith in literature. And uh, this t-shirt is a benefit for our English Honor Society and our Literature Department Club. And so if you'd like to support our English Honor Society and our Lit Department Club, you can also buy a t-shirt over there in Carmichael Hall. And finally, in case you're wondering, tonight's conversation is indeed being recorded for possible broadcast as a future episode of On Being. If one day, the conversation makes it as an episode of On Being and airs on our own beloved WCQS, you will be able to say, I was there. <laughs> Maybe not unlike the 1.2 million men, women, and children gathered at Sinai for the revelation. <laughs> I was there when the voices of these two wise visionary women spoke. Please join me in welcoming Marilyn Nelson and Krista Tippett. <laughs> I'm kind of overwhelmed by that introduction. Yeah. <laughs> um, what a beautiful way to start the evening. You know, what a sacred space was created instantly. I've been, I've been saying jokingly, but it's not really a joke, that uh, <clears throat> part of our contribution as a show to the election year has been putting lots of poets on the air. Um, and we have, and, and we didn't really plan it. Lily's here with me. We didn't sit down and say, we're going to put a lot, but we've done one poet after the other, and here we are again. And um, actually, I haven't analyzed that too much, because it's more than just that it's soothing, which it is. Um, uh, you know, what poetry works in us is to soften us and deepen us, and those, that's exactly the opposite of, I think, what the political spectacle has done for most of us this year. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, Elizabeth Alexander, um, who you've worked with, writes, mm -hmm. that, has spoken about what poetry does is it gets at undergirding truths. And getting at undergirding truth, it, like, I think I, we heard this, we just experienced this a minute ago, that we were all, we could find our way back to undergirding truths. And that's such an antidote to the simplified, you know, fact versus fact, or the, the clashing facts or less than facts. Um, so thank you for that. And I'm, 
I'm so happy and honored to be here. Uh, and um, I want to thank the sponsors also. I'm delighted to be at um, University of North Carolina Asheville um, and the Wake Forest Divinity School. I am actually one of those people who took a non-traditional path out of Divinity School and got a pretty good gig out of it. Um, uh, and, um, and of course, WCQS, um, our public radio station here, uh, who brought us on the air in the very early days when most public radio stations were just very unsure and somewhat horrified at the thought of bringing the subject onto public radio, what might happen. Um, so here we are, and I'm just delighted to be up here with Marilyn Nelson. Um, it's been such a treat to be reading your poetry these last few days. Thank you, um, Krista. Um, you were born in Cleveland of a teacher, mother, and a father who was a member of the last graduating class of the Tuskegee Airmen. Correct, yes. Um, and I wonder, uh, and you were moving around a lot. A lot. Yeah. And so how would you describe um, the religious and spiritual background of your childhood? It's however you would, however you would define that now. Um, well, um, for most of my childhood, we lived on Air Force bases and went to non-denominational Protestant-based chapel, yeah. um, which meant Sunday school and vacation Bible school and the rest. And um, when we went to visit my parents' families, we would go to the traditional family church, which was usually uh, AME, African Methodist Episcopal. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, there was not usually a lot of talk about religion. It was more a question of how my parents lived. My father wept in church with emotion. He just wept. And um, we had talks about what were the right and wrong things to do, but there was never any... Um, Hmm. Discussion of theology, or Did, we had no what, training. What kind of? Um, I wonder what impression that made on you—that he wept in church. And did you talk about it? We never talked about it. No. Yeah. It, it impressed me. Yeah. It touched me, uh, and I never knew why he wept. But it was the the the, the only t other time I saw him weep was uh, at the funeral of a, a cousin who died as a child. But he always wiped tears um, in church. Yeah. 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 And um, there was a lot of music in the house. My, my mother um, played the piano and sang, so we sang a lot of hymns and mm -hmm. spirituals in the house. And I guess that may be an essential way of learning something about spirituality, yeah. singing. You, you also said something interesting um, in an interview. You said... Um, that when you, as a child, you read your father's old college poetry textbooks mm -hmm. and used this interesting language. You said, I think that a lot of my early ethical training came from reading those poems. Yes, I, I still remember some of them. They're poems that nobody reads anymore. Maybe so you could find them in 101, 101 of America's Best Loved Poems right, or something right. like that. But things like... Um, 
The Fool's Prayer. Do you know this one? Uh, it's, a, oh, it's a beautiful poem. I don't remember the name of the poet. The king's, the king, shall I just describe it? Yes, yes. And I mean, also I'm curious about that word, ethical training. Like how, what, okay. how a poem holds that. All right, this, yeah. this is a good example, I think. The king is having a, his board in the evening and he calls for his fool to uh, come into the throne room and give him a prayer. Pray, fool. And uh, the fool offers a real prayer in which I only can say a couple of lines of it, but I think it has something to do with ethics. When it, well, it's, um, These clumsy feet still in the mire go crushing flowers without end. These hard well-meaning hands I thrust into the heartstrings of a friend goes on asking forgiveness for just being a human being. And at the end of the, of the poem, the fool leaves and the king goes out into the moonlight and repeats the prayer, asks mm. for, Lord, have mercy on me, mm. a fool. And I, I thought... I, I probably read this poem for the first time when I was 11 or 12. And I, the lesson it taught me was about how clumsily we can treat other people, how easy it is, that line, the hard, well-meaning hands we thrust into the heartstrings of a friend, how easy it is to be clumsy like that, mm. how careful we need to learn how to be with other people, how delicate other people are. And um, I, I took that as, as a lesson in gentleness, I suppose. Mm. And, uh, yeah, mm. I suppose. Mm. You, you also wrote, I am... Um, I found this intriguing that you, mo you, you moved with your military family from place to place, and you said that um, you and your sisters always imagined that when you left each place, it disappeared, ceased mm. to exist. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And you did... Um, this book, How I Discovered Poetry, mm -hmm. it's a memoir in poems. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and I just want to make sure... So I, I, Oh, do, where, where do I have it? Yes, here it is, right here. Um, no, yes, it's right here. Um, these were poems that you wrote. Were they poems you wrote or that you later imagined? No, I wrote, I wrote? later imagined. Oh, okay. They're, they're poems that were written looking back. Yeah. And uh, okay. trying to show, it's uh, written for young people. Okay. And I wanted them to have a sense of what it was like to grow up in this kind of family in the 50s. Yeah. So I just wondered, so I, I want to say, I said to Marilyn, I have a few books here, and I have some, we'll read some poetry throughout. I'm going to ask her to read some things. Uh, we'll read some at the end. But I also said to her that if she just feels called to grab one of these books and read, <laughs> she can. <laughs> but I wondered if you would just read the last poem in this, in this uh, collection, How I Discovered Poetry. I don't know, I just... Very beautiful. There's a there's a famous poem in here, where you describe how you were first invited to write 
how you discovered poetry through this teacher. This awful teacher. <laughs> really? Yeah, you never said awful. that. <laughs> yes. Okay, this one is called 13-Year-Old American Negro Girl. Uh, each of these poems has a little byline of where we were at the time. This, we were on an Air Force base in Oklahoma in 1959. 13-Year-Old American Negro Girl. My face, as foreign to me as a mask, allows people to believe they know me. 13-year-old American Negro girl, headlines would read if I was newsworthy. But that's just the top of the iceberg, me. I could spend hours searching the mirror for clues to my truer identity if someone didn't pound the bathroom door. You can't see what the mirror doesn't show. For instance, that after I close my book and turn off my lamp, I say to the dark, give me a message I can give the world. Afraid there's a poet behind my face, I beg until I've cried myself to sleep. Thank you. Yeah, so. <laughs> okay, thank you. That's my sister banging on the bathroom door. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know, do you want me to talk about it? And I, 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 for me, uh, the, the crux of this poem is the fact that I really did pray give me a message that I can give the world. If you give me a message that I can give the world, I promise I'll be true to it. I'll be honest to it. That was, that was my 13-year-old my prayer. Let me be a poet. Give me something to share. Yeah. So. Right, so okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think you did you. it. Thank you. Um, I'll take this back, but you can grab it anytime. Okay. Um, and is this one that you wrote? It feels to me like in a lot of your poetry, there's a public life implication, even if it's not a you know, even in that poem you just read. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, is this a poem that you wrote at age sixteen here in Democratic Dominion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where okay. Did you so find this, that one? okay. <laughs> Lily helps me prepare. Here in Democratic Dominion, each man has his own opinion. He can argue loud and long. He has a right to his own wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're putting poetry on the air during election year. <laughs> but you know, you put poetry to family and history to love and lynching to motherhood and monasticism. Mm -hmm. So so what I want to do just for our next time together is kind of trace that, read a little, reflect a little. Um, okay, we've talked about Leonard Cohen, but we haven't talked about Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, I have to say, I, I, what, what I love about, about Bob Dylan winning the Pulitzer is it it reminds me of a conversation I or not with the Pulitzer the Nobel um, I had a um, 
conversation with uh, Paul Muldoon earlier this year, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, he loves music. He's also the poetry editor of The New Yorker, and he said, you know, we Americans think they don't read poetry, but they walk around singing poetry mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Our music carries mm-hmm. poetry, mm-hmm. and they don't think of it that way, and I loved Dylan getting the prize for I that did reason. Too. Did you? Yes, Good. I okay. did, yes. Because I know it's a little controversial. Um, I did see that you worked with Lutherans after college. <laughs> to that point, and you were invited, and you were a poet, and you were invited to serve on the hymn text committee, which is another way people in churches walk mm-hmm. around with poetry, not calling it that. And you revised every text in the hymnal, trying to remove traces of racism, sexism, and militarism. Yes, it was a huge job. <laughs> Try to remove militarism from onward Christian soldiers. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a job that, if there are Lutherans here, it's a, the green hymnal is uh, the one that I, that I worked on, and it was really a challenge. I was a kid. The other, the other people on the committee were theologians and ministers with years of experience in congregations, but I was good at rhyming. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, because uh, yeah, th- this is someplace else where we get poetry. Yeah. I love hymnals. I I go. I belong to a Congregationalist church now, and I love the hymnal we use because it identifies not not only identifies the the uh, writer of the text, but also says something about who that person was mm. and how this text came into being. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really great poetry yeah. in hymnals. I'd, I would, I keep trying to mo- get a get some kind of a poetry workshop organized in which we sit together and and work on new hymns. I mm. think it would be a, I think it would be a really good workshop to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, you you also write a lot about family. You put mm. put poetry to family. I, you know, I think writers in general, but poets in particular, have this exquisite tool for um, kind of getting inside the deep meaning of family and not having to make it neat and tidy. Um, the home place is your, yeah, is, are your poems where you really went back to the history, your, your, your lineage, really. Mm-hmm. Um, these are really these are long poems for the most part, so I didn't choose one to read. But if there's one you want to read, um, but one of the things you've said about what was important to you in writing this is humanizing your ancestry. I mean, but I mean, just to you know, give a little bit of description. You now, these are very lively characters. These are a few generations of your family and aunts and grandmothers and. You know, it's the things that are happening in the world around them. It's what they're having to reckon with, mm-hmm. including the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. But it's also having babies, living in big, boisterous families, mm-hmm. uh, serving in the army, falling in love. Who was it? Aunt Geneva, who was the wild one, mm-hmm. fell in love with a white man. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wonder if you'd talk about that work of, and that calling for you of humanizing that ancestry, what that means. Well, I, I think um, I don't I don't know what I meant when I said that. I don't I don't remember saying it. Um, but I but I, I my my mother believed that 
she was very aware of living history. She was very aware of the fact that she and my dad were making history. And, and she had grown up in a family that believed that about themselves. So several other people in earlier generations had tried to write the family story because they felt that their, story, their stories were important, important enough to share. And um, when I started writing the poems in that book, I had only the sort of myth of some of the family history. And doing research about the family was a way of, of giving the myths real flesh and bu uh, blood bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and um, some of them were so much more interesting than I had known before, especially Pomp, my great-great-grandfather. He, I found a lot of information about him. Before that, he had just been a kind of, oh yeah, the great patriarch of the family. But he really was a man who, who did things and accomplished things in the small world he was limited to. And, um, but it's no more than any family history. Right. Every family history is fascinating, and we're all we we're, we all live in history. And whenever you put your foot in that in that river, you're changing it. You're you're mm -hmm. you are making history. You're influencing it. So uh, I looked at my own family history with a great deal of humility. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's true that any of us could do that, but but then it's this is such a condensed and vivid way to capture it, mm -hmm. you know, to tell mm -hmm. the story. It's quite different mm -hmm. from uh, a, a work of prose would mm -hmm. be telling mm -hmm. those stories. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much in every line. Mm -hmm. There's stories in every line. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think so. One of the poems in that you book that I particularly... Well, sure, do it, yeah. So, glasses on again. This, uh, this is not my mother's family history, but it's one of the poems that really touched me as I was working on it, because it, um, it's a, uh, based on a couple of stories that were told me by a Tuskegee Airman, um, Bert Wilson. Um, these are his stories, they're true stories. And um, the last line of this poem is, I, I think it's the most beautiful line of poetry I've ever written, and it's totally a quote. He just said it over lunch. <laughs> So I, I, I don't even own it. So it's kind of a longish poem, but it's a Tuskegee Airmen poem. It's called Lonely Eagles. And I think, I think the only thing that might require a, an explanation is the word, the Spukwaffe, which my father had written over the class picture of his Tuskegee Airmen graduating <laughs> class. So it's yeah. it's the, the black Waffe. The, as opposed to the yeah, Luftwaffe. Like, as opposed to the Luftwaffe. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, it's Lonely Eagles. 
Being black in America was the original catch, so no one was surprised by 22. The segregated airstrips, separate camps, they did the jobs they'd been trained to do. Black ground crews kept them in the air. Black flight surgeons kept them alive. The whole group removed their headgear when another pilot died. They were known by their names, Ace and Lucky, Skyhawk Johnny, Mr. Death, and by their positions and planes, red leader to yellow wingman, do you copy? If you could find a fresh egg, you bought it and hid it in your dop kit or your boot until you could eat it alone. On the night before a mission, you gave a buddy your hiding places as solemnly as a man dictating his will. There's a chocolate bar in my Bible. My whiskey bottle is inside my bedroll. In beat up flying tigers that had seen action in Burma, they shot down three German jets. They were the only outfit in the American Air Corps to sink a destroyer with fighter planes, fighter planes with names like by request. Sometimes the radios didn't even work. They called themselves hell from heaven, this Spukwaffe, <laughs> my father's old friends. It was always maximum effort. A whole squadron of brother men raced across the tarmac and mounted their planes. My tent mate was a guy named Starks. The funny thing about me and Starks was that my air mattress leaked and Starks's didn't. Every time we went up, I gave my mattress to Starks and put his on my cot. <laughs> One day we were strafing a train Strafing's bad news. You have to fly so low and slow, you're a pretty clear target. My other wingman and I exhausted our ammunition and got out. I recognized Starks by his red tail and his rudder's trim tabs. He couldn't pull up his nose. He dived into the train and bought the farm. I found his chocolate three eggs, and a full fifth of his hoarded-up whiskey. I used his mattress for the rest of my tour. It still bothers me sometimes. I was sleeping on his breath. Hmm. Oh. Thank you. just said that. I was sleeping on his breath. Yeah, and I, yeah. he told me this over lunch. This is a man I had not met before. Somebody said, there's a Tuskegee Airman living in the next town. Why don't you give him a call? We met, and he told me a lot of wonderful stories. And he told me this, and then we met again in, uh, a little while later when I had written his stories up. And for this one, he cried. This one made him cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you also, you have a character in there during the Civil War area named Henry Tyler. Ah, yes. Um, and and again, that's a, it, it's a very he's a complicated character, complicated. and you you let that yeah. be there. You yeah. just let that be there. Also, in the life of your family and your yeah. great grandmother, was yes. it? Yes, yes. I mean. Um, 
American history, especially in the South, uh, American history goes across a lot of lines that we imagine are impermeable. There weren't mm -hmm. impermeable. And um, in, in my, my family believes <coughs> that um, one of our ancestors was this white man, Henry Tyler, and that the relationship he had with our foremother um, was, she didn't belong to him. It was, it was during uh, the years of slavery. But m my family believes that this is a love story. And um, my cousin and I went to the town our family comes from. And of course, a lot of the old records have been burned, uh, destroyed. But we did find a deed um, for a house in which he gave our foremother, Diverne, a house. And we take that to be some indication that the story we had inherited mm -hmm. was a true story, that there was, there was some kind of relationship there. Uh, who knows what could have happened, what kind of relationship was possible at that time, I don't know. But you also, um, he was a terrible racist and also a symbol in many ways, or an exemplar yes, of... Yes, he, he went on to become a, a state senator, a state representative. Uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he had been a part of, uh, what's his name, Raiders, Forest, Forest Raiders. It was a famous... Uh, I can't remember his name, and I'd have to read the whole book to find it. Um, but this man, somebody, Forrest, who uh, was a, a, a colonel or something in the Confederate Army, and our, this Henry Tyler fought under him. And this man, Forrest, our for, uh, for maybe purported forefather, um, went on to have a... Um, a career in politics in Kentucky. But this man, Forrest, um, became the, uh, the originator of the Klan. Hmm. Um, so he went in that direction. I don't know. I mean, these are things that, we, that are verifiable. Mm -hmm. The relationship is not verifiable. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, we just don't have any, any way of knowing things like that other than, than DNA. And, um, what we do know, luckily for me in writing this book, is that um, our, our uh, family, uh, um, is, we are the only uh, descendants of this, of this Mr. Tyler. He, oh. he had his children, he had children, he married later and had a couple of children, but they all died without issue. So if, if he was our forefather, right. then we are the he only ones. He lives on through yeah. you. Yeah. You, um, in that, I also read that interview in Image, which was wonderful, which was referenced. Um, and they asked you about the years in which you were teaching, writing, parenting a child at the same time. And I just want to read what you said. You said, uh, my book, Mama's Promises, describes a lot of my experience during that period, I came up for early tenure in an almost exclusively white male English department when my son was about 15 months old. I was unhappily married, new to the community, and had a few friends. 
though I had published a book of poems with a major university press and had poems in several major press anthologies of younger American poets, I had to fight for my life because my colleagues considered poetry inferior to literary criticism. I spent several years writing poems at 3 a.m. because I had to do class preparations first. I went to the ER several times with heart palpitations caused by stress. Meanwhile, my mother was disappearing into Alzheimer's disease. And then you said, I would not want to relive that period of my life, but I kept thinking of my great-great-grandmothers. Yes. Yeah. Kept thinking, if they could live through what they lived through, I can live through a 10-year decision. Oh, oh I, before I do, I want to do this, my radio ID, but it, I want to get this right. I meant to double check. It's the Festival of Faith and Literature? Yeah, Faith okay. and Literature uh, Festival of Contemporary Writers of the Spirit. Oh, that's faith the... So Faith and Literature. Uh, Festival of Contemporary Writers, writers. Oh, of the Spirit. Of the spirit yeah. And then Faith and Literature? Oh, no, Faith and Literature. <laughs> okay, the Festival of Faith and Literature. No, Faith and Literature. Oh, Colin. faith in literature. A festival of contemporary <laughs> Okay. I have to write this down. All right. Faith in literature. A festival. Of contemporary writers. Oh, thank you. Okay. A festival of contemporary writers of the spirit. Okay. I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the poet Marilyn Nelson at the University of North Carolina at Asheville. At, <laughs> see, see, I haven't written it down. I have to write this. Everything else can be spontaneous. <laughs> All right. Um, this reminds me always to double check when I say I'm going to. Let's do it this way. Today... Today I'm, at, today I'm at Faith in Literature, a festival of contemporary writers of the spirit at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your understanding of the relationship between poetry and silence. You said poetry comes out of silence. Would you talk about that? Yes, I think poetry comes out of silence and lead a, leads us back to silence. Uh, it should, I think, lead us back to silence. Silence is the, is the source of so much of what we need to get through our lives. And um, poetry consists of words and phrases and sentences that emerge like something coming out of water. They emerge before us, and they call up something in us. But then they turn us back into, into our own silence. They, it's, a, it's a, a gift in a way. It's a gift out of a kind of universal silence that takes us into or private silence, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's why reading poetry, reading it alone, silently, takes us someplace where we can't get ordinarily. Poetry opens us to, the, to this otherness 
that exists within us. And um, learning to write poetry, it's a, it's a struggle, but learning to write it is, I think, to a large extent, an, an, an exercise in learning how to listen to silence, um, learning how to evoke silence, mm. I think. Not 100% sure of that, but I think so. Um, in any case, I think poetry and the silence of the inner life are related, are connected, and that um, it's, don't you think, you read a poem and you say, ah, and then you listen to what it brings out inside of you. Mm -hmm. And what it is is not words, it's silence. So, uh, yes. I wonder if that's um, one way to talk about what's happening when, in mean, my experience, when we put poets on the air, um, is that people respond like, like they were starved for this and they didn't know it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and we do live in a time, I mean, I, I think you've been, you're very winsome about how you, you love technology in, in, in many ways. Um, and yet the presence of technology and the pace of our lives makes silence this endangered thing that mm -hmm. um, we, we do have to intentionally create it, mm -hmm. create the po spaces for the possibility of it. And I, I don't think that was always true in, in human history. Oh, I think it's more and more difficult to find silence. You go any place, restaurant, to airport, and people are all figuring out ways to fill up the silence with some, some kind of technology. And they're listening on earphones, they're looking at uh, smartphones, and uh, I don't, I, th I think this is a terrible thing. I think it, uh, I, it frightens me, that I, I think we've become afraid of silence. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, you know. it's, it's not necessarily a comfortable thing, right? So, so, so the technology is there to rush into that discomfort, meet the discomfort, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, so you actually have, um, You've worked with contemplative, contemplative, combined contemplative practices with your teaching. Yes. Um, and maybe that's, I mean, that's partly what you're doing. You're, you're helping people sink into that. Or that's one thing contemplative practices do for us. Yes, and, and I think people are starved for that, too. Yeah. Um, the, the times that I've offered um, a few minutes of meditation at the beginning, of a class, just say, you know, we, we come into a classroom out of who knows what. We come into a classroom and then we are immediately starting to talk about something. Let's come into the classroom, especially in a poetry classroom, let's come into the classroom and sit for a few minutes in silence and get to the place in ourselves where poetry operates. Let's not bring all of the noise of the outside world into this classroom. Let's release it and uh, enter into silence. And I've had students love doing that. Mm -hmm. Nobody's offered them that. 
have, has been quite a lot of recent research about the effect of contemplation. Right, the research has caught up with you now. Yeah. And how much it enhances the learning experience, and I, I think that's, I think that's what I've been trying to offer students in my classrooms. I've had a lot of wonderful, beautiful results. So I, I was, I'm really intrigued that you, you, was West Point one of the places you started doing yeah, this? Yeah, that was you, the first. Yeah, and, did, and yes. so you said there was a, you got a contemplative practices fellowship, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure what that means, right as you were starting to teach at the mm -hmm. U.S. Military Academy mm -hmm. at West Point. So, I mean, tell us about that experience. It's an organization called the Center for Contemplative Life, oh, Contemplative Mind, mind, mind in yeah. Society. Yeah. I don't know if they, I think they still still do offer this fellowship. Yeah. They offer a fellowship which um, enables the fellows to develop courses which incorporate the teaching of contemplative practices across disciplines. So it doesn't matter what you what your discipline is, they want you to try to, to bring this in. And I um, had applied for one of these fellowships, and, um, and shortly, I don't know, I applied for the fellowship, and then I was invited to West Point to do a reading and after the reading, they asked me if I would be interested in teaching there. And I think the next day, I got the news that I had won this fellowship. So I said, I've won this fellowship. <laughs> and they said, bring it here. Do it here. So uh, I, uh, I wound up teaching two sections of a course on poetry and meditation to cadets at West Point. It was a, it was, it makes me want to cry. It was an absolutely wonderful experience. I loved the cadets. We would come into the classroom, close the door, turn off the lights, and meditate for five minutes at the mm -hmm. beginning of the class. And then I asked them to meditate for 15 or 20 minutes every day outside of class, which was very hard for them. Their lives are scheduled. Every yeah, minute right. is scheduled. Finding 10 or 15 minutes and a quiet place was really a, st a stretch for them. But they did it, and they kept journals. And their journals showed so much growth during the course of that hmm. semester. And I, don't, I loved them. I remember we, we made up mantras to meditate with one of them, made up a mantra uh, to swim in a heartbeat of clouds. Um, yes, so, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, I was... I was also really intrigued that... Um, you, it sounds like you, you coupled that, like you, you explored also where that takes people, and you use words like musings um, and communal pondering. That in those classes, mm -hmm. you, I mean, you, you didn't, it, it, it was happening, but you were also kind of traveling with what it made possible. I mean, just that notion, I mean, you, 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 you that you you ended up having these great conversations about just war theory. Oh yes. That came yeah. that yeah. that that probably would have been very different if 
if the conversation hadn't started in that silent, grounded, contemplative place, mm-hmm. even the notion, I mean, the phrase communal pondering, I feel like that's like what we need as a nation right now. <laughs> right? We have no idea how to do that, but it sounds so fascinating. I think maybe one of the things we're doing in poetry readings, you know, yeah, I just yeah. was last night at the the Dodge Festival, Geraldine Dodge Poetry Festival in Newark, and um, the chancellors of the Ameri- Academy of American Poets read last night. There are twelve chancellors, so twelve readings, each. I think each reading was seven minutes. It was communal pondering. The poems were, the poets were different. The the voices were different. And every one of the poems took us someplace that brought something out of us. From poems about, I remember Mark Doty read a poem about his, he writes a lot about his, about dogs. So we had a couple of dog poems. We had poems about grandparents. We had poems about losing friends. Or, um, we had um, Ann Waldman who read a, a Tibetan, it was her own poem, but it was based on a, a Tibetan Buddhist chant, I think. Uh, it was it was wonderful, and it was a way of sitting and pondering together, and I think it's a very rewarding activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I one of my college professors said that poetry rediscovers reality for us, and in a way, that's what happens. You go to listen to a poet, and you leave not only having learned something about the poet's reality, but also having learned something about the reality you are living. And uh, I guess that's what communal pondering is. <laughs> um, you know, to that point, um, I, don't, I don't know if this is something you're aware of, but we, we found this blog post that was written actually by a professor who'd just gotten back from sabbatical. Um, and she was dusting her office. Have you, have you read this? I mean, this is the things you can find on the internet. This is, this is the upside of the internet. Um, is this your poem, Dusting? Mm-hmm. It's a small poem, is it? I don't know if this is the whole thing. You want to read it? Uh, oh, she put it on her blog? She put it on her blog. Oh. And I, and, uh, so I'm gonna, I'll, read, I'll read what she wrote. You know, she wrote, uh, the, the blog title was The Spiritual Case for Dust. <laughs> And, um, but why don't you read it, and then I'll read what she said. Okay. (laughs) It's in that shaded area. Okay, it's a part of it. I don't remember. It's just a part of it. Okay. Uh, Thank you for these tiny particles of ocean salt, pearl necklace viruses, winged protozoans, for the infinite, intricate shapes of submicroscopic living things. Yeah. And she wrote, she wrote, um, Nelson's poem and my dusty office reminds me that the unpolished and ordinary is cloaked in the extraordinary. 
even as I settle back into my everyday life, in that dust, tiny tokens of the universe have settled into my office. Should I be able to sort through the moats, I expect I would find fragments brushed from the cliffs in Ireland, blown into the air by storms in the Pacific, and burnt off comets that blundered into Earth's atmosphere. Crumbs of the infinite lie scattered across my desk. I'm suddenly hesitant to pick up my dust, dust rag and wipe it all away. <laughs> yes, I read someplace that dust is one of the cleanest things on the planet. And we, yeah, you can wash in dust. And that we can't have rain without dust. Dust seeds clouds so that rain happens. We wouldn't have rain without <laughs> dust, which I think is beautiful. And that dust is full of life. That the things listed in, the, in, in my poem are things that are in dust, that dust is alive. Um, uh, 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 Sharon Olds, a really terrific poet, um, told me once that she, she had named the dust bunnies in her house. <laughs> yeah, we need to do that. <laughs> so, so contemplative prayer is, is part of your life, is that right? Is that... Well, I'm, yes, I'm more of a backslider. Okay, than, okay, well, let's say something you're drawn, you've been drawn to. I have Would been be drawn fair? to okay. it, yes. And my, my, uh, my, my friend who is a former monk and who uh, travels around um, teaching meditation. Is this Father this is Abba Jacob? Abba Jacob, yes. He's a pretty intriguing character. He in is a writing. very intriguing character. Uh, he says that meditation, after you practice, it's an attitude. It's not, you don't have to sit in a certain way and hold your hands in a certain way. It's an attitude. You look at the world with this attitude. In a, a similar way, I was thinking um, today, earlier, about um, methods of prayer, which I've found just beautiful and meaningful. One of them is the prayer of, of just gratitude, just feeling grateful. And one of them is a prayer I found in a book by a, a nun who lives as a hermit. I don't remember her name or the name of the book. But she offers a kind of prayer which she calls the prayer of the loving gaze. Mm. It's a prayer. Just put your love into your eyes and just look at the world with that gaze. And that, that's what contemplation is about, really. It's learning mm. how to find that gaze in yourself and to put it in the world. I, I, yeah, I think. Mm. I, I'd love to, um, to delve into Abba Jacob a little bit. <laughs> so, so he's a real person. He sounds like a desert father, when you, right? Even Abba Jacob calling yes, him that. Yeah. Well, that he was... He sounds like one of these, her, her, uh, these hermits who could have been living in the deserts of Egypt. Yes, well, and the first time I visited, I mean, it's a... Someone I met when we were we were in college together, and um, um, the I, twenty years later I found him living as a hermit, 
and I went to visit. And oh, you were at college he, with him. We were in college together. Really? You know, we met fifty years ago. Um, and uh, he, he was t- he was reading the Apothems of the Desert Fathers to me while we were together, okay. and that's where all of all that right. okay. comes from. Yeah. <laughs> I turned him into a desert father. Okay. <laughs> yes. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you have all these. Uh, this is in the in this collection, faster than light, new and selected poems. Um, you have kind of an Abba Jacob section here mm-hmm. called "How to Be Human Now," which is also just such a wonderful line. I guess it's from Auden to discover how to be human now is the reason we follow the star. I mean, it's, it's from small things like this, which you call truth and beauty. Abba Jacob said, nothing is too good to be true. <laughs> um, and then there's this poem, maybe you could read this little one, Where Humanity Begins. So, so, so have you spent time in conversation with him and then kind of made a poetic journal of it? Is that how this has emerged? Um, the, the, these, this little sequence of poems here, I came across this Auden passage and asked him if he would think about it. Mm. And um, the next time we were together, um, he had thought about it and made some notes and gave me little talks. Um, so these are these are attempts to catch something that he said in these, in these little talks. Okay. So you want it where humanity begins? Yeah, why don't you read that one? Okay. <laughs> Excuse me, I call him Abba Jacob, but it could be Jacob. Oh, okay. But it doesn't matter. That makes him sound okay. even more even like Even more it. like a desert father. <laughs> like a yes. desert father. Okay. <laughs> Abba Jacob said, perhaps our humanity begins in receiving the consolation of the ordinary. So many people wish to find God in some parallel world outside or beyond this one. We do not need to search for God. We need to be open to this world of pain and beauty. It is in our attentiveness to this broken world that God Finds us. Hmm. Yeah, so, um, yes, my friend is very, well, he's spent f- about 45 years living the contemplative life. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he travels a uh, French speaking, he travels around the Francophone world teaching a meditation. Um, and I feel very lucky to mm. have this connection with an extraordinary man, really. Um, here's another here's uh, one. I want to ask you about this, another poem that you wrote about him. Abba Jacob said, um, there's a big difference between the mentalities of magic and of alliance. People who spend their lives searching for God have a magical mentality. They need, they need a sign, a proof, a puff of, spo- of smoke, an irrefutable miracle. People who have an alliance mentality know God by loving. 
I'm really intrigued by that phrase, an alliance mentality. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? I should ask him. <laughs> um, I think um, people who have a magic mentality believe that God is something out there that we have to, to find, to connect with. And people who have an alliance mentality know that God is inside of us and in our connections with each other and with the world, that God exists within and between, not exterior to us, but within us and between us. I think that's what, he's, what, he's, what he was trying to say. So we are allied with whatever God is. Yes. Mm -hmm. And with everything we're part of. Yes, there is no separation. We are a part of God. That's, isn't that the ecstatic experience? That we, we recognize that. And some people know that just naturally. Other people have to learn it. Mm. Um, but that experience of oneness um, um, is something that everyone can hope for. I don't know whether it's, it's a gift that's given, mm -hmm. um, but everyone can hope to receive that gift of just uh, realizing that we're, we're part of everything. Dude, who is a... I'm, maybe it was Merton who talks about being in the city and suddenly just feeling... Oh, and being in Louisville, that epiphany? Yes. Yes. Um, we, we can hope for that, and that is mm -hmm. the alliance mm -hmm. mentality. Right. He I says, I, I suddenly realize I love all these people. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but it was that gaze you're talking about. Yes. It was his gaze that had been the transformed. The loving gaze can lead us toward that experience. I do... I know that's true, mm -hmm. that if we look with love on the world and on each other, we, it, it, it affects us. In the same way, it's really simple. Um, we are told that if we smile, mm -hmm. we, it, mm -hmm. it affects us physically. Yeah. Uh, if you just have a smile on your face. And having love in your eyes, the same love that you feel when you look at the person or people you love most in the world, you know what that feeling of the tenderness of that gaze is. If you can take that gaze and put it into your eyes when you look at strangers, they will feel it. Mm -hmm. It will change things. The world will be changed if we can learn how to do that. I do believe this is true. Oh. Mm. I wonder if you'd read a couple of poems. Um, church going is one of them. And that is in here. I just chose a few, three here. But if there's something that you would like to read, then we would all be happy to hear it. OK. Oh, this, one's, this one's good. I mean, <laughs> what I meant to say is this one's great. <laughs> um, this is, um, it's a, a kind of a, a take on a 
poem by Philip Larkin called Church Going, in which um, Larkin, a uh, young British man riding his bicycle through the countryside, stops at a, a ruined church and walks, the doors open, and he walks in, and he says he goes up to the holy end. It's absolutely no faith at all. And then he goes to the cemetery and says that there he can feel something because these people died believing something. That's why they're buried there. So this is a kind of a take, a take on it. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Church going after Philip Larkin. The Lutherans sit, sit stolidly in rows. Only their children feel the Holy Ghost that makes them jerk and bobble and almost destroys the pious atmosphere for those whose reverence bows their backs as if in work. The congregation sits or stands to sing or chants the dusty creed's automaton. Their voices drone like engines on and on, <laughs> and they remain untouched by everything, confession, praise, or likewise giving thanks. The organ that they saved years to afford repeats the Sunday rhythms song by song. Slow lips <laughs> recite the credo, smother yawns, and ask forgiveness for being so bored. <laughs> I, too, am wavering on the edge of sleep and ask myself again why I have come to probe the ruins of this dying cult. I come bearing the cancer of my doubt as superstitious suffering women come to touch the magic hem of a saint's robe. Yet this has served two centuries of men as more than superstitious can't. They died believing simply. Women satisfied that this was truth were racked and burned with them for empty words we moderns merely chant. We sing a spiritual as the last song and we are moved by a peculiar grace that settles a new aura on the place. This simple melody, though sung all wrong, <laughs> ca captures exactly what I think is faith. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? That slaves should suffer in his agony. That Christian slave-owning hypocrisy nevertheless was by these slaves ignored as they pitied the poor body of Christ. Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble that they believe most who so much have lost. To be a Christian, one must bear a cross. I think belief is given to the simple as recompense for what they do not know. I sit alone tormented in my heart by fighting angels, one group black, one white. The victory is uncertain, but tonight I'll lie awake again and try to start finding the black way back to what we've lost. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, a friend of mine who was uh, a part of the World Council of Churches for several years told me that he used to travel around the world for the WCC and that wherever he went in Africa, he got the same two questions. The first question wherever he was in Africa was, is it true that Americans have 20 different kinds of toothpaste? <laughs> and the second one was, do white people read the same Bible we do? And uh, I think that's re relevant here. I was talking to somebody recently about Mother Emanuel Church. That was, yes, in, yeah, and South, what in Charleston. Their, what their response has been, mm -hmm. how extraordinary their response to that um, horrendous, I don't even know what to call it, yeah. that horror was, you uh, didn't pick up guns and go out looking for revenge. Um, so that's what I'm, I think the black way to Christianity in any case is, is a way that um, other Christians in this country at least need to learn. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's an, uh, I don't, there's one, there's a poem in here called Farm Garden, which just struck me. But is there, maybe, is there something else that occurs to you that you'd like to read? Just That's, I in terms of that, where your mind is going right now? Um, no, I think Farm Garden is, for, is for, uh, about George Washington Carver, I think. Is it in that book? It's in this one, yeah. Mm, okay. um, it's lyric histories. Is it about George Washington Carver? You have said that, that writing about George Washington Carver changed you. Yes, no, this isn't from Carver. Okay. And that did change me, but uh, it, it really did. Uh, but why, why? What was it about that? Um, um, I, I, had dis I had been writing a, a series of poems about radical evil, and I, I could see that whatever we discover, whatever evil weapon we discover, somebody's going to use it. There is no limit to our capacity for evil. And I wanted to look at um, a saint's life to ask whether there is any limit to our human capacity for good. Mm. And Carver's life showed that capacity. He lived, he lived what he believed. He lived his faith. Mm. He, and um, uh, I believe he was a saint. And if you read any saint's life, um, it's humbling. It changes your life. Why aren't I like that? Why can't I do something like, why aren't I giving away everything I own? Um, so yes, that's, mm -hmm. that's how Carver affected me. But this poem here is, um, is from a different project. It's a... Uh, it's a, about the life of Venture Smith, who was enslaved in Connecticut in the 18th century. He was captured as a boy 
in, I think, Ghana, brought to North America as a slave, served for about 30 years under several different masters in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New York. And then he purchased his own freedom, and then he purchased his children and, the, and his wife, and then he went into the freedom business, saving up money and setting people, buying people, so he could set them free. So this is, um, this is from his life. And, and in this poem, he's telling a lot of his story. Uh, it's dated 17, about 1790, Farm Garden, Venture Smith. You can find his narrative, his, his uh, life of his own story. Uh, you can find it online. It's, if you just look up Venture Smith, it's one of the first books published in Connecticut. By the time I was 36, I had been sold three times. I had spun money out of sweat. I'd been cheated and beaten. I had paid an enormous sum for my freedom. And 10 years farther on, I've come out here to my garden at the first faint hint of light to inventory the riches I now hold. My potatoes look fine, and my corn, my squash, my beans. My tobacco is strutting, spreading its velvety wings. My cabbages are almost as big as my head. From labor and luck, I have much profited. I wish I could remember those praise songs we used to dance to with the sacred drums. My rooster is calling my hens from my stone wall. In my meadow, my horses and my cows look up, then graze again. My orchard boasts green fruit. Yes, everything I own is dearly bought, but gratitude is a never-emptying cup. My life equal measures pain and windfall. My effigies to scare raccoons and crows frown fiercely, wearing a clattering fringe of shells like dancers in the, what did we call it? Dance. My wife and two of my children stir in my house. For one 30 years enslaved, I have done well. I am free and clear, not one penny do I owe. I own myself, a $500 man, and $2,000 worth of family. Of canoes and boats, right now I own 29. 70 acres of bountiful land is mine. God or God's, thanks for raining these blessings on me. I turn around slowly. I own everything I scan. So the, the narrative of Venture Smith's life was published in, I think, 1795. It's one of the rare stories in African American history. This family, Venture Smith's descendants, have been free for eight and nine generations. 
there is an annual Venture Smith Day mm. in East Haddam, Connecticut, at the Congregational Church he belonged to and is buried in the cemetery. They, uh, now there are scholars who are coming to talk about new discoveries of his life uh, and his, his descendants come. Last year, or maybe the year before, uh, Venture Smith's descendants went to Ghana to the castle he remembered being shipped out of. They were there, nine generations free. It's such a wonderful story. And it, it's what American history could have been. It could have been that way. Um, but this is a man who did this for himself. Mm -hmm. He was a self-made genius, a businessman. He uh, was an entrepreneur. Yes, he remembered every penny he spent. Here's, a, here's another poem about him. It's, may I read this? Yes, yes. The Freedom Business. This is, this is another portrait of him, uh, about, also about 1790. My poems are all based on his stories. Freeing people is good business in principle. You'd think they'd thank you for 60% of their earnings while they repay your capital investment. <laughs> business and benevolence for once going hand in hand. <laughs> but people think you're freeing them means they are free to leave or lollygag. And your money carefully <laughs> banked, then paid to the man out of brotherly love, might as well be tossed down the privy hole. <laughs> the first person I freed cost 60 pounds and had repaid 20 when the fellow stole away by night. The second turned around and went back to his master, so I lost $400 for nothing. <laughs> and the third and I simply decided it was best to part company. Frankly, the reward for freeing people is a broken heart. My son Solomon, 75 pounds, sent on a whaler, his young life cut short by scurvy. My daughter, 44 pounds, marrying a fool and contracting a fatal disease. I paid for a physician, 40 pounds, but Hannah died. God has mysterious ways, and freedom is definitely not a matter of funds. Freedom's a matter of making history, of venturing forth toward a time when freedom is free. Mm. Also edifying for this election season. <laughs> Let's see, which election would that be? You know, somewhere you said, uh, there are so many interesting stories, I'm sorry I can't write about all of them. And I think we, we get that. And there's so many stories that you've written about, you wrote, you wrote a children's book about Emmett Till, but really also about his mother. I mean, there's so many stories, your own, from your own family and other families. I wonder, through all of this... Um, and this is a, a vast question, but how you would just start to answer it. Like, you know, how your sense has evolved, how you think about what it means to be human, what this life in poetry and storytelling has taught you about that. 
don't know how to answer that. What it how, how how do you maybe think about that in a way that would have surprised you at the beginning of your life? I think I've become more open to to I think I've become more open to history, to other people's histories. Uh, when I started, I was writing about my own life and the life of my family. And um, the last two projects I've done have taken me quite a distance away um, from those interests. One, one of the, the two most recently published books I've written uh, are... Uh, one of them is a, a history of the first 200 years of the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme, Connecticut. Old Lyme, Connecticut is a community that has been populated for the pro probably the last at least 120 years by the families of sea captains, whaling captains. It was a very prosperous community and and this congregational church started in that way it was founded in 1666 and the first church um, divided the congregation with uh, um, women and girls sitting in the front and boys men sitting behind them and then boys and servants and slaves hmm. sitting in the back. That's how it began. The first minister of the church raised his children with the help of Arabella, his slave. That's where it started. And um, working with, the, with this specific history of a New England town, of a prosperous New England town, seemed to me to be teaching me something about our nation, where we started, what we've gone through, the, the wrenching of our history. And this church now, 350 years after its founding, with the first minister keeping slaves in the attic of the parsonage. Take, one of the ministers took off for a year off of his ministry to go and fight the Niantic Indians. Mm -hmm. This community now has a relationship with uh, uh, Lakota community in North Dakota. So there are people going back and forth from the church and the reservation every year. They have uh, uh, they have a relationship with uh, the only free tuition free private school in Harlem. I mean, this is, a, this is a community that has learned how to be what they have always thought they were, but couldn't see. Hmm. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a, it was a wonderful thing to work on uh, pulling this history out, teasing the threads of this history out. Some of the stories are, are just incredible. At one point in the 18th century, a uh, uh, young woman who was half Niantic, that's the local tribe, she was half Niantic and half African. 
she was coerced into signing a document with an ex agreeing to be sold as a slave. She signed an ex and, and agreed to, to this, however she was convinced to do it. And by um, the church? By the, yeah, well, yeah. it's in the church records. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then, you know, they had to learn in the last... 80 or 100 years, they've learned how to be a church, a true church. In the course of, of this 350 years, they, had to, they really had to struggle. They really mm-hmm. had to struggle. What does it mean? How do we live out the faith we claim? How do we bring it into the, into the world? Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's not easy. It's not easy. There are always people who want the safe route, um, you know, who think that doing unto others means doing unto others who are like you. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah, I, I said, too, the, other, the other project is a, is a, uh, a history of the Tuskegee Airmen but it's told through the eyes of a teenage boy who believes he's Italian and Irish and who learns that one of his ancestors was a Tuskegee Airman stationed in Italy mm. during the war mm. and what, what that does to his sense of, mm. of himself. And... Uh, I don't know, maybe untrue because it's completely fiction, this one. Um, but uh, working, trying to struggle with real history has been a way to learn something about who we are. I think less personally, less who I am than who we are as a nation. What are we doing here? Uh, and. How is it that we have managed to um, persist in these blindnesses that we started out with? How are we, how is it, back to our campaign, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how are we able to lie to ourselves like Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. But, But what I think the stories you're investigating and telling are also true about what we're capable of. And it's important that we, that we see the fullness um, of what's possible. I, th- I think so, yes. Right, because that kind of story, right now especially, we're just not hearing very much, right? It's, it almost doesn't seem possible. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the good stories. Yeah. The stories of people who who do something wonderful but ordinary. And people do wonderful things and then they say, I only did what seemed like the obvious thing. Uh, you know, I didn't really choose. Mm-hmm. But most people don't make choices like that. And I think we do. We need to, we need to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. We need to learn about um, people who are willing to put their lives on the line. I was, uh, just had a conversation earlier today about... Um, a little one of these cell phone videos that was made in Edina, Minnesota, a couple of days ago. 
uh, in which uh, an African-American man walking down the sidewalk, there was some kind of construction blocking the sidewalk, so he walked out into the street to go around the blockage, and a cop immediately stopped him and grabbed him and started pushing oh, him right around. Again. And there was a woman there who uh, you could hear in the voice. I visualize this woman. It's a middle-aged, white, Minnesota woman. She gets out of her car. She starts recording this. And then she says, but officer, I think you should, I think that you're being unfair. But I think you should help him. I, in a kind of timid way, but she spoke up. She, this man could have been dead. He could easily have been dead for walking down the street. And I want people to know the, the story of this woman. That was a heroic thing she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, so I think we need to be telling these stories. And I, I think it also is just an illustration of the ordinary wo- interwoven with the extraordinary, which is really such a theme that runs all the way through your, your writing. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I, there's a poem that you wrote uh, uh, after Rilke, who I also love, which I think is in, it's in the Fields of Praise book, page 152. Maybe you could read that to close. It's, it's just lovely and quite quite. It's another one of your voices. Oh, all right. This is a a love song. How shall I hold my spirit that it not touch yours? How shall I send it soaring past your height into the patient waiting there above you? Oh, if only I could shut it up leave it to gather velvet dust someplace where it would echo you no more. But like two strings vibrating as the bow ripples them with a long caressing stroke, we tremble, drawn together by one joy. What instrument is this? Whose Fingers make a chord beyond our capacity for awe. How sweet. How ah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>